Welcome to episode 19 of Strange Sound, the podcast featuring me, Joe, some white guy living in upstate New York who is just full of opinions and can't wait to share them. Here we are. Anyway, uh, not usually very strident. Um, I'm usually trying to gently encourage you to think about something perhaps in a slightly different way or perhaps in the same way or perhaps in a slightly... uh, Less radical way, if you're more radical than me, uh, you know, it really depends on where you stand. All I can tell you is where I stand, uh, at least when I can figure out where that is. And uh, usually I can. So let us proceed. Glad to have you with us. By which I mean to say, glad to have you with me, because there is no us. Strange Sound is just me. The opinions expressed on Strange Sound are mine and mine alone. They reflect no one else's um, view of the world. They are all about me, just me, some white guy named Joe. Um, and and, and that's, that's about the size of it. I, I speak for no one else. And I am the only one involved in the production of the show. I'm sure you can tell it's just sort of... Ham fistedly thrown together and tossed up on the web and left out in the middle of the street for anyone to happen upon. Uh, that's the technique I've learned <laughs> through plenty of internet experience, <laughs> just tossing things out in the middle of the void and hoping that someone picks it up and ponders it and, you know, benefits from it. Um, so, times are strange. We're still... Here in America, in mid-pandemic, um, struggling through this whole thing, just to sort of situate um, this these remarks in time, it is July 11th when I'm recording this. Um, I will be releasing this later this week, probably on Tuesday or Wednesday. Um, as of today, the big news on television is that Donald Trump has granted a commutation to his friend um, Roger Stone, uh, perhaps one of the most vile creatures ever to crawl out of conservative politics, <laughs> who apparently came up, you know, worshiping Nixon, that sort of thing. I always lump him together with Norquist and Abramoff, um, people that are perhaps maybe a little bit younger than him, but are um, are sort of. I lump them together in the same in the same group. Um, just a bunch of grifters growing fat off the carcass of conservatism in America. And, you know, they've certainly Stone has attached himself to Trump's ample ass like some kind of saprophytic leech of some kind, some description, horrible thing. Anyway, that's all I'll say about him. I don't really care. 
it's no surprise to me that Trump would commute a sentence, um, you know, grant him a commutation for any, you know, crimes that he's either obviously committed or not. It's what's the surprise, right? That Trump acts like a two bit TV gangster in running the American justice system. That's a big surprise, right? We knew he was going to do that, right? When he was elected, the American people decided to make him president. What the hell is he going to do? Is he going to run the Justice Department with integrity? Is he not going to favor his friends? Is he not going to attack his enemies? Is he going to change or pivot you know, to become more presidential because he'll rise to the level of the office or will he drag the office down to his level? What do you think? Of course he'll do the latter. Of course that's what he he would do. And that's exactly what he's done. It's absolutely no surprise. And, you know, I'm sure this is just fine by people who have, again, attached themselves to his ample ass. Like saprophytic parasites. Um, and, And in fact, you know, that's essentially what a lot of people bought onto in 2016. And they're they're probably not too disappointed. I mean, the president has, to some extent, delivered what he promised them. He's been, you know, um, Vlad the Impaler to uh, undocumented immigrants. He's separated children from their parents at the border and put them into what could be termed concentration camps, but are, in fact, detention centers uh, that were established prior to his tenure as president, but that he has made even more famous and poured more resources into. Um, He's at least affected to have built the wall that he promised them, even though he hasn't really built that much wall. But again, with Trump, it's just a question of what he says he's doing. He, He just makes shit up and says it a million times, And people who follow him, you know, accept whatever comes out of his ample ass, uh, I mean, his butt mouth, um, as the uh, delivered truth, right? He is the voice of God to them. The voice of God. Whoever thought the voice of God would sound so ridiculous? I mean, he's truly an embarrassment. But I know. Any conservative listening to this is going to think, oh, oh, there's liberal Joe. He's annoyed just like I was annoyed by Obama. (laughs) And, you know, it's a fair cop. Yeah, I find him annoying. I find Trump tremendously annoying. I found Trump tremendously annoying long before he was president. I remember seeing him striding onto the stage at CPAC and I, I just turned the television off. I mean, not that I would ordinarily watch CPAC speeches, but I mean, when I'd see that in, in, in like news coverage or whatever, it'd be like, I just turn it off. I don't want to see him. I didn't want to see him. I didn't want to hear him. He's just an annoying git. And of course, uh, you know, the American people make him president, or at least a minority of the American people decide to make him president through the uh, ultimate grandfather clause known as the Electoral College. And uh, now I have to see him every day and hear him every single day. 
And yeah, it's annoying. I'll cop to that. I'm fucking annoyed. And anyone should be who, uh, you know, isn't, again, attached saprophytically to his ample ass. So yeah, to me, it's like drinking urine every day. And, you know, I mean, I know in saying that I'm making conservatives happy. They're happy that I feel like I'm drinking urine every day. That's part of the point, right? (laughs) They want to own the libs. Not that I'm a lib. You know, I'm not a liberal. I'm far to the left of that. Uh, Anyone who's listened to this podcast knows that, you know, I'm probably not as far left as, as a lot of folks who have podcasts, but it just depends on how you, um, how you determine that. In any case, I find Trump, you know, nauseating, disgusting. He's a jerk. I've said in previous episodes, I don't think he's a Manchurian candidate. I don't think he's run by China or run by Russia or run by Turkey. I think he's just exactly what he seems like, exactly what he's always been, exactly as described by um, by many good journalists over the years, including David, David K. Johnston, and um, plenty of people uh, who have reported on him. And, you know, um, it isn't like you need to dig very deep to figure out what Trump is all about. He's got a glass head. He's completely readable. You know exactly what he's thinking. You know exactly what what he's doing. I mean, it's there are no secrets there. Right? He's a dick. He's a tremendous dick. He always has been. And I'm speaking as somebody who, yeah, I, you know, I accepted money from him back in the 1980s when I played in a band and I played at Trump Plaza in Atlantic City, you know, backing up a a country singer. It was an interesting experience, but it was, you know, it was harsh. He mistreated People, I mean, his organization mistreated people. They handled people very poorly. I think I might have mentioned in a previous episode that I shared a stage with uh, uh, a group called the Clovers, uh, the group that did the original version of Love Potion Number no. Nine <laughs> back in the day, which is kind of a hilarious song, even if a little cringeworthy in some respects. Um, and it was a you know it was a casino performance group right sort of a low level performance group but included a couple of the original members of the band and uh they were treated very poorly um they were mostly african american gentlemen very nice fellows one of those guys looked so much like Nat King Cole i almost fell over backwards i thought oh my god it's Nat King Cole oh wait he died Um, but I think it pissed me off more that they got treated poorly than that we got treated poorly. (laughs) I mean, they kind of bullied us and stuff. Um, but the fact that those guys had to like on their last day, you know, grab everything and get out of there, get out of Dodge by, you know, five o'clock or something or else, or else there'd be trouble. Um, that really irked me. (laughs) I mean, those guys didn't deserve that. Maybe we did, but they didn't. Anyway, but I digress. So, yeah, uh, dickish company. 
run by a small businessman named Donald Trump, who, uh, well, I mean, I said this to my wife over the last couple of days, uh, any person who's worked for a small businessman before, and I have, knows exactly what Donald Trump is made of. And they know exactly where Donald Trump is coming from. Um, I've talked about this in previous episodes, I'm sure. <laughs> He's the quintessential small businessman. Every idea he has is brilliant. You know, every decision comes from him. He's arbitrary. He's in a bad mood today. You know, you're fired. You're hired. You know, just every dick move you can imagine, right? Some of them are benevolent dictators, but they're all dictators. Let's face it. The vaunted small businessman or woman, small business owner, let's say. They're all, you know. They're, they're petty dictators when they have a staff, right? When they have employees, they're petty dictators. And, and that's, you know, that's just, that's capitalism, right? Anyway, that's what Donald Trump is. Small business owner, dickish. We already knew that. Okay. So what did I want to talk about today? Well, not so much Donald Trump, um, I wanted to talk a bit about the ongoing um, protest movement against police brutality and essentially a, a broader set of issues than that. But that is kind of in the reductionist way that news typically reports, the news media typically reports movements like this has been narrowed down to... Um, Police reform and police brutality and um, Black Lives Matter. Um, And the phenomenon of corporate America um, kind of signing on to some of the agenda that they perceive as being part of what protesters are asking for in a different way, in in a way that's distinct from what has happened in the past. So after Ferguson... After Michael Brown was killed, um, after Sandra Bland died in custody, um, after Freddie Gray was killed or died in custody, killed, right? Um, You didn't see a broad front of corporate America jumping on board um, and saying, yeah, Black Lives Matter. Um, you didn't see Amazon posting on, on, uh, Twitter, something like what they posted, um, in June this time around or, or late May, I should say, when they posted the inequitable and brutal treatment of black people in our country must stop together. We stand in solidarity with the black community, our employees, customers, and partners in the fight against systemic racism and injustice. Moving words. Moving words. I'm looking at a Vox article right now. It's, it pairs this with a, with a tweet. Uh, it's a retweet of this message um, by one of the BLM folks saying, so are you going to pay your employees? Are you going to donate? What are you going to do? Open your motherfucking trillionaire purse, Jeff Bezos. <laughs> but, right, did you see this after Ferguson? Did you see this? 
after Freddie Gray? Did you see this after Walter Scott? Did you see this after um, Philando Castile? Not really. So why is this different? What's the difference between then and now? Um, as I always say on this show, there are people you could listen to. You could, there are people you could, whose articles you could read or whose podcasts you could listen to who could give you a better sense of this than I could. I am not an expert. I don't pretend to be. This is just my, my view of it. And my view of it is, is fairly simple. Um, this is a big, broad movement that has emerged not only from a society racked by anti-black, anti-minority police violence and policy um, that, that sort of leads to police violence, but also a system that has bracketed people and economically and just put them into an impossible situation. As many have pointed out, this is a generation um, rising up that was that came of age in the wake of of 9/11 that um, came of age um, during the financial crisis of 2008 um, that lived through a really rough recovery that was not really a recovery for them. Um, one that didn't have a lot of opportunity, but that was being sold to them as a success, right? I mean, the Obama administration didn't crow as much as the as the Trump administration has about um, the economy and how much better things are going. I mean, they would once in a while say, well, you know, when we came in, we were losing 750,000 jobs a month. And uh, now, we, you know, we're... Now we're headed in the right direction, and we're we're almost back to where we were in two thousand eight. Um, then Trump comes in and he's like, "This is the greatest economy ever." No, the world is, the world has never seen anything like this, you know. And you know, going on and on and on about it, but it's basically the same performance, right? Maybe a little bit weaker, but still climbing up, still climbing up out of the hole slowly, like a three legged thing, you know that or originally had eight legs and like a three-legged spider just barely getting out of that hole that it fell into in 2007, 2008, 2009. And yeah, so these young people have been through all of that. They went through the crash. They went through, you know, the first decade of their working life, you know, not able to really get out from under their their educational debt or you know get any traction as far as their their um, economic life is concerned and then they come crashing into this this situation with Trump where you know they're they're told again and again that this is the most you know successful economy this is this is the greatest economic period in the history of the country, and they're still struggling. And then this pandemic hits, knocks them off their pins, knocks the economy off, even the shaky pedestal that it was on before, even that shaky rung of the ladder that it had climbed up to on its three legs. And 40 million people are thrown out of work. And in the context of that, 
police brutality continues, right? I mean, examples of police brutality continue. The George Floyd example, the George Floyd video is more graphic and more kind of revealing than probably anything we've seen up to that point. There's just something about that. I mean, it's obvious what what that something is, but that video is just more affecting in a lot of ways, and it came at that particular moment when it just touched off. It touched off a, a revolutionary kind of spirit, and people went out into the streets by the millions all across the country. I've talked about it in previous episodes. I mean, you know, I'm not reporting on anything. I'm just saying <laughs> even in a place as small as where I live, a small upstate New York town, you know, you had thousands of people marching. Even, you know, a neighboring town, a suburban town where where I actually grew up, the, you know, white peopleville. Um you had hundreds of people showing up on the street. Amazing. I've mentioned before, um, the, the biggest protest I can remember from back in the day around here was um, just before the start of the Iraq War in 2003 when we had about 200 people down, down in downtown Utica. Now, we've had bigger protests than that since. Um, there was a large turnout um, during the um, 2018 campaign, I think, um, because Trump came to Utica to support Claudia Tenney's re-election bid, which she lost. But there was a there was a large turnout in protest of his appearance, and I think there were several hundred people there. So that that in itself was bigger than the. Iraq war protests, but the the demonstration that followed George Floyd's murder was far larger than any of the demonstrations that had happened around here in many, many years, and perhaps ever. It was in excess of a thousand people, probably it, it could have been more like two thousand people, I don't know. But uh pretty amazing. In a place like Troy, New York, which is, I believe, smaller than Utica in terms of population, there there were like 8,000 people. Amazing. But, again, I've been through all these numbers. The reason why you're seeing... <laughs> the reason why you're seeing Amazon, you know, saying, oh, we... <laughs> suddenly we've discovered that uh, racism is bad. Um... The reason why you're seeing that, the reason why you're seeing, you're seeing Netflix, you know, <laughs> you're seeing all these, all these companies coming out and saying, you know, Black Lives Matter. Um, it's because that's a window into the mind of the people who own this economy. That's a window into their calculus as to what they need to do in order to protect themselves. And what they always do is try to try to cut their losses, right? I mean, this is a huge movement and it has put the scare into politicians. It has put the scare into corporate America 
Anytime this many people rise up and make their voices heard, things start to happen and, and it, puts, it puts the scare into the powerful. You see movement on the part of politicians. That means that the people that fill their pockets, basically corporate America, are getting nervous too. They're particularly getting nervous because of the intersectionality of the protests. Because these protests are not just about police brutality. It's much broader than that. It's an economic argument. It's a set of arguments that have been made for years that are just coming into vision uh, on a national scale. Uh, People who don't pay attention to these things are, are hearing about them the first time. So what they're trying to do now is in the usual reductionist way that they approach things, is just to try to focus attention on this one issue, on Black Lives Matter, and use that as almost like an advertising slogan to make it even smaller, right? Because they're trying to... (laughs) They're trying to protect the money. They're worried about where this could go. People are articulating an alternative view of society and an alternative vision of society that would provide for more broadly held prosperity. It's the sort of thing that sort of moves politicians to try to try to come over and meet it before it goes too far to sort of mollify the beast, you know, throw it a stake. And, and that's what corporate America is doing. That's why you're seeing these big companies, you know, sort of pay lip service to to the uh, to the revolution, right? Um, and it's it's cynical, it's extremely cynical. I mean, we know that, right? I think everybody knows that this is this is just, you know, this is just corporations being corporations. They try to monetize everything. And as soon as something becomes a popular position, they will try to own it. That's what they do. But they are also trying to, they're trying to put it in a box. They're trying to keep the movement from getting to articulating a broader critique of society that is going to, in effect, affect their profits, affect their business model. They're trying to minimize it. And, uh, you know, maybe they'll succeed, maybe they won't. That's really up to us. They can't succeed as long as we remain focused. I mean, (laughs) I've been accused of being an electoralist, right? I'm not. I'm not. I think elections are important. I don't think they're the only thing. I don't even think they're the most important thing. But they are important. Because it's it's a means to an end, right? We can't ignore electoral politics. But the thing that pushes politicians forward, the thing that puts the scare into the owners of society, is when millions of people organize, get together, stand in the street, and throw a spanner in the works, make them listen, articulate an alternative vision for society. When that's put forward by millions of people in the street, 
The politicians will move if they are at least semi-inclined to do anything. They have to be on the right side of politics in order to, in order to be responsive to, to movements like this. I mean, like, you know, you can have as many people in the street as you want. Donald Trump is never going to do anything that isn't in his own narrow self-interest and in, in the interests of his class, right? I've talked about this before. You can knock yourself out. Um, he's never going to change. He's never going to pivot, people. It's never going to happen. He's never going to say black lives matter. (laughs) Not in a million years. No, you need to have somebody in the presidency and, and people in Congress and people in state legislatures and, hell, people at the local school board who, you know, are, who are, would be inclined to do something even if they wouldn't go half as far as you would want them to go. But they're pushable. That's what we need. So we need to pay attention to that, but we also need to, you know, we need to be out in the street, (laughs) and we need to be organized, and we need to be strategic, and we need to keep our focus. So if, if we succeed in getting rid of Trump at the end of this year, that's great, but we can't stop there we have to keep pushing whoever replaces trump probably biden right we have to keep pushing them and we have to stay focused so that if we're fortunate enough to have a national legislature and a president who's pushable that we keep it that way for as long as we can we cannot allow them to come back We can't allow a Biden presidency to be replaced by a Tom Cotton presidency, right, in in four years. Or to be taken over by a uh, backlash midterm in 2022. That's a question of focus, and it's a question of commitment. I'm mostly talking to, you know, white people of my own age out there, okay, and, and older. Um, I don't think I need to tell young people that they need to remain focused and not give up and be strategic about this. I, I don't, they don't need me to tell them that, but I'm, I'm just saying for people who are like me, who are not a product of this era, you know, who are are really a product of a previous era, (laughs) who did not come of age during the uh, Great Recession. Um, I'm telling people like me, you know, you have to stay focused. You have to stay engaged, both in an activist sense and in an electoral sense. You can't neglect either one. And if we if we manage to do that, um, you know, God only knows what the ads will say in a few years, right? It's a rear guard action on their part. They're trying to keep us from going too far. All I can say is fuck them. Keep on moving, people. That's all I've got to say. I'd like to know what you have to say. Uh, I should mention, we're on YouTube now. 
Uh, I'm not doing like a live stream or a video version of the show. Um, I'm just posting audio at this point. I'm not saying I'll I'll never do that. Um, you know, I'm I'm in my early 60s. I'm not really the the stuff of a YouTube sensation. <laughs> I look a little crispy, so I'm not going to do that. Um, but but you know, I mean, you know, I may have a kind of a video version of this at at some point. We'll see. It won't be an early resort to that. Let me put it that way. But we are on YouTube. Um, you can find a link to that on our Anchor site, anchor.fm slash strange sound. You can also find links to our Twitter feed. Um, you can leave a voicemail message there. Uh, I'd be happy to play it on the show. Um, you can learn more about us at big-green.net. Uh, just follow the tab to podcasts. And uh, the link to Strange Sound is right there. You can contact me via Twitter. That's at Strange Sound Pod on Twitter. We also have a Facebook page. Um, by all means, leave us messages. Uh, leave me a voicemail. Uh, send me a direct message on Twitter. Or, you know, tweet at me. I don't know. Do something. Say something. Glad to hear from you. Hope you uh, have a good week. Um, Take good care, and uh, I will see you next time. So long.